thanks very much for taking the time to speak to me today. Um, Chris, uh, my, my, my guest is um, Dr. Dr. Chris Christopher Kerr's um, PhD in neurobiology, MD, CEO, end of life researcher, and chief medical officer of the Hospice and Palliative Care Unit Buffalo. Did I get all that right, or am I missing a few bits? I know you're an author, also. Yeah, no, you got it. <laughs> I got it. Yeah, <laughs> perfect. Um, this is crazy. Yeah, I, I, you know what really has me looking to speak to you. I know I messaged you a little while back, and you were on leave. Um, I have this podcast, Thought and Truth, and um, well, really, it was training Thought and Truth, and it used to be the physical, mental, and spiritual elements overlapping, and myself trying to develop each aspect of my life in that way and trying to get experts in them fields on to help others learn. And um, I dropped the training part, the physical side of it, because um, it, be- it was becoming a fitness podcast and there's plenty of them out there. And I wanted to deal- delve into deeper conversations. Um, the thought and truth then, um, well, I guess I've been talking about meta- metaphysical issues or deeper kind of issues about life. Um, and I came across your TED Talk. I think I actually came across it about a year ago. Um, and I really was really, really interested in speaking to you about it. Um, so that was what kind of called me to this meeting. But I know from from your initial sentence in your TED Talk, you were saying that something called you from an early age to the field you're in now. Would you like to talk a bit about your background and what that was? Yeah, Um I, I, I actually think it pulled me away, but it's funny how life works. You kind of end up full circle in an odd way, whether you mean to or not. I, what my point was um, in the TED talk was I actually had a, I, I, I'm a hospice doctor, but uh, you know, I was actually extraordinarily death averse. Um, I, uh, I, I, I mentioned that, you know, my father died when I was a, a child. Um, so there was that element to it. And then um when I was confronted with dying patients in medical school, um, and of course, training doesn't help this. The, my aversion to dying <laughs> only yeah, accelerated yeah. Um, because it's, you know, it's, it's a cure-all culture. And, um, you know, we actually, uh, we actually fragment the care. So when somebody is no longer treatable, we kind of distance ourselves. So I really mm-hmm. didn't, it's easy to be death averse in medical school, as was yeah. my point. It's, it's a safe place to be. And um, what happened was, it's just coincidence, or maybe not, I was a cardiology fellow, so highly at the interventional end of acute medicine and needing to make money for my family. And I saw an ad in the newspaper for weekend help at a hospice. Um, so it was, I wish it was, it was some great aspiration to help mankind, but it was really practical. I needed to work. So, you know, I, 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 uh, I started to work with dying patients and I had this recollection from childhood seeing my father at the end of his life, um, when he was making references that from his inner experiences that were not part of my reality at that moment. And I carried it with me my whole life, and I really didn't speak of it very often. And so here I am at hospice um, decades later, and I'm confronted by this thing from childhood, really, that I had seen, didn't understand, and it kind of haunted me. Um, So that's how I kind of ended up being full circle. And uh, the irony, of course, is that I end up starting this work, and um, it was the most meaningful role I'd ever played as a physician. And um, so I went to my chairman in cardiology, which ironically was a very competitive field and said, you know, I don't want to, I want to do this over here. Um, and, uh, you know, they wanted me to see a psychiatrist, the whole thing. Really? Wow. Well, now it's a, now it's a trained fellowship to just to mm-hmm. give it some scale. In our town, there's probably 50 practitioners of palliative hospice medicine. At the time there were two. Wow. So it was something you did when you were tired and burned out. So anyways, that's, that's kind of what I meant. Yeah. But it, but it is interesting, you know, you're saying by coincidence and you're kind of, you know, you're highlighting that word. And, you know, I often do wonder, you know, and you might allude to see if you think this way as well, that a lot of people's experiences 
kind of go towards what they'll be in a meaningful aspect of life. You know, I always think that you could do the expedient job, but there's also another call to something maybe a bit more meaningful. Um, and even your work in publishing your books or your documentary even probably could give a lot of people who have lost someone a bit more um, comfort, maybe uh, hope that there is um, a life after death, you know, because the trouble I find is that, you know, if you talk about the afterlife to people, you know, you, you're kind of discredited in their eyes almost, you know, they're kind of like, ah, oh, no, that's nonsense. You know, half people might say that to you. But then there's so much evidence about it, not for, just from end of life visions, but near death visions. And, you know, you see, you see surgeons converting after seeing these things, you know, saying, wow, you know, there's definitely something else going on here. Mm-hmm. Do, do you think there's an issue why this isn't more in the scientific field? Um, it seems like there's some kind of barrier not to talk about it as much. You know, you know what I mean? It's not so um, if you won't see it published on the headlines of the paper you know, the evidence proof of the afterlife are, but, but you interviewed over 1400 people in, in the get go. Do you think there's some kind of push back against that narrative? Oh yeah, very much. I think that, um, I think basically what's happened is um, as medicines become more capable on the scientific side of it, it's, it's just kind of abandoned the art of it. And um, I think it's, we live in a strongly evidence-based time. You know, we can image, we can understand cell lines, gene expression. So there's this, we live in an era where we can always under, we can always dissect and understand uh, the objective world. Um, what that has done is that's inadvertently um, caused us to let go of um, the things that we can't see. Um, and so, you know, dying has become a medical paradigm to solve. It's defined in terms of its organ failure or futility, something you know, something no longer works that we can fix. Whereas dying is actually a closing of a life and it's a much richer human experience. And that's what, that's what medicine has lost hold of. And the reason our work um, you know, has, has continues to go in a storm around the world um, is not because it's new or necessarily novel at all. It's that we're, I think we're contributing to a movement that wants to reclaim or recapture dying um, as something with, that has uh, a deeper human value. um, And that includes aspects that are actually life affirming. And what drove or propelled our work, I never actually thought what we do would ever get published. And then it ends up in the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Atlantic. It's not, again, it's not, it's so spectacularly done or novel or creative. What it is, is that it resonates with people who are at the bedside and actually see or experience. So we were holding the wrong end of the stick. We were trying to originally My goal, I was interested in just publishing it because I was trying to teach it to residents and students, and they were saying there's no evidence. You know, it was littered in the humanities um, um, and in religion, but not necessarily in science. So that's why we did our studies with a lot of rigor, and we filmed people, which ironically becomes part of a documentary. Um, But who, so I, I was trying for one audience, and it seeped out into the into the lay press and the people who were experiencing dying or witnessing dying outside the medical world, of course, were saying, um, you know, yeah. So what it did is it provided a framework, basically, um, for people to have some form of validation of what they were experiencing at the bedside. Um, when I say medicine, I should clarify the nurses, um, people who actually work at the bedside, they know this stuff. Like it's not, it's preaching to the choir. It was more the physician community who had, was less aware. Yeah. And I remember you saying that, you know, this woman, Nancy, you're talking about that patient, Tom, and, you know, she knew that he was close to dying based on divisions. And you were kind of alluding to, well, I didn't learn that in medical school, which is interesting because it's such a, it seems like it's such a, fu- a common and fundamental part of the whole process and it's left out. And you, you, you said something there, you said, you know, people were tying it to 
a kind of spiritual, religious side of things that, you know, they couldn't qualitative, could have put it in a framework. And I wonder, you know, with our history, with the um, the scars of organized religion, where people tying that in with the same, uh, tarring it with the same brush, maybe, you know, and, and not wanting to go down that route. Because I do know from looking back and reading that, I think it was Galileo Galilei who, who tried to remove the search for the soul from biology studies. Now, maybe I'm wrong in saying that um, to pro to progress um, other areas of the field because they had such an issue with locating the conscious mind or what, what the consciousness or the soul, they're trying to link them together. And it seemed to be, there's a big step over that side of things. Um, and like you said, there was probably no framework then. Things went on without it. Um, and it, it, it is, I, I'd imagine it was a very hard push for yourselves being kind of the first people to break through that because we do live in a scientific age now. And the worry is that things become, um, human life becomes less transcendently valuable, I guess. You know, if everything's seen as, like you said, organs are fading, they're like parts of a car almost when you're, you know, when you talk about it. And, you know, you imagine a palliative care, what you'd like it to be is not the abandonment of someone dying. You know, you nearly want, you know, what's the big difference between the process of birth care and dying care? You know, it should be held to the same regard. Do you find that there's a bit of a, a, a less regard for the dying in the medical field? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, it's, it, you know, medicine is very transactional. And when there isn't... Um, um, when, when there, when there isn't a treatment, there's abandonment and, um, and, and the, the life becomes inadvertently kind of less respected or mm -hmm. less regarded. Um, you know, and I think what we did is so, you know, we were, we were very careful to put this and do this in the language of science. So, you know, these were university approved studies. We did things like used very validated instruments to rule out confusional states. Um, you know, we obviously then filmed people so you, you couldn't miss, it wasn't, they weren't relying on us telling them um, massive amount of data. Um, and we were very careful not to extrapolate. So we didn't take what the patient was saying and say, this means this in the religious or paranormal or afterlife realm. We just wanted to, merely translate what dying patients were relaying to us. And, um, and that's what was so fascinating is we were so, were so bent medically in the physical domain, we were, um, had inadvertently uh, failed to recognize that the patient was having a change in vantage point and perspective and perception, that there was a lot that was rich going on in their inner world. Um, which kind of makes sense. Um, you know, it's these profound moments. And, and we even did a study looking at um, this notion of post-traumatic growth. Can something positive be happening within this largely negative, uh, viewed negatively uh, experiences, which is dying? And people continue to learn and grow and understand right up until the last days of life. So clearly, we're 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 um, we're dismissing something that's actually very vibrant and and pretty astounding. Um, it's just experienced from patients in the bed's perspective. It's not observable. You can't biopsy. You can't scan it. It doesn't it doesn't take away the fact that it's happening for the patient. And it happens in children, um, and it happens in the very old and. What you end up finding is there's a better story than the one we would imagine. Um, you know, that these events um, are, are, are largely comforting. They're meaningful. They reconnect people to the ones they've loved and lost. Um, and again, that they affirm life. They don't deny death. It's not like this isn't happening. It's actually quite the opposite. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a neat story. Yeah, but you know what's interesting as well? It's nice to to think that people have comfort in the end. I was talking to um my partner here, Shermaine. She was we're talking about loved ones, just because we we're on this this topic and I was looking at a few bits of your own. And we're talking about recent loved ones who have passed, and we we're talking about, you know, that seemingly the the fear of the unknown 
early in their prognosis compared to on the last day or so when you know the fear seems to seep away a bit um and there's a there's a peace peaceful element that's nice to see um it's nice to see that it's almost a comfort to the people as much as it is to the person who's passing um but in in palliative care imagine it's somewhat different than hospitals because you are intertwined with that person like you're seeing that person at their most vulnerable moments and not only that person but their whole family you know around that bedside and you're hearing people's life stories and um i'd say it's quite hard to you know i'd imagine the first couple of times you experienced this you were pretty blown away did it kind of rock your um your worldview yeah because i you, you, first of all it's very unsecuring because you feel untethered right you're used to a hospital you're part of a team there's always something to do and it gives us false illusion um that you have a clearly defined role and then what happens is you're abandoned you're you uh have no more tricks in in, in the toolbox and um, you learn all of a sudden that your role is to be present. And the physician actually does have a role as comforter. And um, that that is inherently also inherently therapeutic. We're not doing to someone. We're not intervening. Um, but at a very human level, it's, it's, it's pretty meaningful. And um, it kind of goes to the the richnesses of the calling in the first place um, and really to the oath that, you know, where you can't cure your comfort um, and you find out it's a pretty cool place to be and uh, it matters. Um, so when you kind of redefine the, the objective, which was, let's just say to cure um, or to reverse or to slow a disease and realize that you're actually treating the person in totality, uh, it's, it's extremely rewarding. Um, and, and clearly more so today because there's, 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 there is such fragmentation and abandonment in care. And um, uh, so it, the need is even greater today. You think, um, I've often heard stories and you might say this is more true or not, you know, that, when people have these type of experiences, they become sedated. It might be the go-to option in certain palliative care centers that maybe they're not understanding of what's going on. I'm sure if they work there, they probably are maybe, but um, there's a tendency to sedate people and up the dosage a bit as they get closer to life. It, 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 do you think, do you agree with that statement? No, I, I, it's actually one of the most misunderstood uh, parts about palliative medicine. Actually, the data is less medicine is used rather than, than more. Um, clinically, you need less medicine. Dying, dying for the most part, uh, is comfort, uh, comfortable. You get, it, it's defined really by desire over time to eat less and sleep more. Um, there are a lot of reasons why there's less pain. You know, if you have bone disease, you're not weight bearing. Um, the pull to sleep becomes very strong inherently in the dying process. It's not that there aren't use of pain medicine, but it's not the magnitude that people fear there are. There are certainly are patients. What's really important in our work, though, is, and, and people do have altered mental status and cognitive status, particularly before the end. Um, but in our studies, you know, we weren't, talk we're not talking about the moments before death. We're talking about the days, the weeks, and even sometimes the month, mm -hmm. uh, before death, when people are having these kind of differences and experiences. Um, yeah, I, I think that's an unf unfair, um, fallacy that, that people are, um, medicated. There certainly are cases uh, that's unden undeniable, but we, you it's sad because I, I really speak a lot against this because what you're doing essentially is our work shows that there are these inherent processes to dying that are comforting and meaningful. And if you have to over medicate um, that, that uh, you're sterilizing somebody from their own experiences and that's problematic um, sometimes the over-medication really is a lack of knowing what the hell to do 
um, in the in the management of of patients, and that cert- certainly uh, happens. So you know they'll say um, this patient is no longer this. We're going to start around the clock morphine, you know, um, and, and and do that. I can tell you that we take off as much drug uh, as we put on most days, and it's this the interventions that are needed are not particularly sexy, but there, there are things like constipation, urinary retention, coughing. It's, it's not, you know, 10 out of 10 pain. Yeah. Um, so. I'd imagine um, that maybe it might be the case if someone was going through a particularly horrific experience, maybe with these visions that maybe it could calm someone down. Maybe it's maybe in that scenario, it could be, I have a, I have a close relative who I only found out the last few days had a negative experience, had this experience in the first place. I didn't know they did the day before they passed. Um, and it was a negative one. And it was someone who was quite um, religious and spiritually good cornerstone of a community. Um, um, but, and you wouldn't think, you know, she um, would have went through that. And it's sad to hear that she did, but, you know, she followed on by going home and being able to die peacefully at home among her family the, the following day. But I think, you know, she was given that sedative, but I think that, that was a case where there was a, a lot of panic involved. It's, mm-hmm. it's maybe so more so in that scenario. Yeah, it, it, it happens. It's about 15, 17% have negative or discomforting dreams. It's really important that um, these experiences don't sugarcoat the life that was led. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's more complicated than that. Some of the negative experiences are actually some of the most transformative experiences. So if you were in war, the idea that you would relive elements of war is true. But we often see, um, like the fellow I spoke about in the TED Talk, is that that's when somehow they find forgiveness for survivors guilt. Um, we've got a person in the um, Netflix documentary who had a, a more or less because of drug use abandoned a child and he had horrific dreams, but that forced him to reconcile the abandonment of the child and ask for forgiveness. So we see um, very positive pieces come um, from that. It's really important to, to, to separate what we're talking about from agitated delirium, which is extremely common. So if, and I don't know the case of the, the, the patient you're referring to, but they had been sleep deprived, let's say in a hospital, woken up a lot, unmanaged pain. Those, those are universally, near universally negative and they're extraordinarily agitated. So that's delirium. What we're talking about is, is people whose cognition is very much intact. So they're not, they're, they're not, um, they're not, disorganized in their thinking um they have to be to participate in our study they have to be aware and and actually clear all those hurdles for participation um if you let if somebody gets to delirium or con- agitated confusion they're, they're often very very sleep deprived and they're often frantic they're reaching trying to get out of bed that's a different experience okay yeah that makes a lot of sense and yeah. I, I don't want to liken this to what you're saying is I understand that the John Hopkins College is doing a lot of studies lately on psilocybin use and the experience of that. Um, and again, I'm not trying to tie that into, you know, what we're talking about here. But when you, when you they, they do tie in the research a lot to near-death experiences, at least, I think. Um, and they say it's, you know, but at the same time, the reason I bring it up is because they say them conditions and them stressors make a big difference to what they experience when they go into that process. So I, I can get what you're saying that the environment or that person's mental condition at the time can have a massive factor. Yeah. In fact, you know, when you, you, you talked about dying in physical pain, we have an inpatient unit where we admit patients who are, can't be managed at home or often in hospital. And by far what's more common for the reason people need to come in is not physical pain at all. Mm-hmm. It's psychogenic pain. It's agitated confusion and delirium. And the backstory is usually you've got a, f- a sick, frail person who needs to sleep. 
and either something's keeping them from sleeping. It could be constipation. It could be being woken up regularly, get your vital signs checked, but you can induce confusional states and those are all often agitated. Yeah. yeah so she, she, the point though you're making is correct. The, the way somebody goes into this absolutely sets the stage. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, you're talking about you have your PhD in neurobiology, you know, where I'd imagine it's a science that goes right back to the cell. It goes right back to the origin and, you know, neural networks and everything going. Um, so in taking that kind of frame, what do you put down as the cause or the origin of these experiences? You know, where, where do you neurobiologically? Sorry. Um, not neuro neurobiologically, maybe, um, you know, the neurobiology, we can see how our full body works and um, all the signals that are being sent. And there's, you know, you can kind of see a reason why things degenerate. Um, but I'm asking more, maybe, maybe a spiritual question. Why do you, what do you think is behind these experiences yourself personally? I know that's not something you can test, but it's sure, certainly something that someone with experience could have, a, have their own thoughts on. Yeah, so so I, I I'm not I, I'm I, I'll disappoint you because I'm I'm not predisposed really to to think in these terms, and so I went into this more as a skeptic than I did somebody than anything else. I think where I end up is um, first of all respecting what I don't know or can't see. Um, I end up kind of inspired that there's a better story than the one that we might fear or imagine. Um, I say that because what I'm continually in awe of is that in the end, the themes that people tend to focus on and relive are, um, are themes of love and themes of forgiveness. And they focus on the people who loved and secured them most. Mm -hmm. um, so it's like that, uh, they were never gone. So that there's this, there's this constant for having lived. Um, doesn't matter how old you are. Uh, doesn't matter when you lost a parent uh, or a child that that permeates all of this. Um, so I, I, I think there is something that uh, sustains and propels us and ties us to the best parts of having lived. Um, where that resides, I have not a clue. Um, it, I'd have about as much luck as saying, you know, show me uh, where love is on an MRI. Mm -hmm. I, I, am, I have no idea, but it's undeniable. Um, so, yeah. I, I, you know, I, I, you know, you mentioned near death experiences and these are so qualitatively distinct from those, um, that it, 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 it's, it's very interesting near death. I don't know a lot about them. Uh, I have a lay person's understanding, but people come out of those experiences with, um, a kind of a playbook or a new understanding or a need to, fix redefine prosthetize whatever like you're propelled to action in your own life and whatever and what we find at people at the end of life is it's it's not a trial run right it's the real deal there's no yeah. more time for, there's no more time for therapy um and so these people come out of or when they're in the process of dying they just have the sense of knowing um without even a need to disclose um it just is so it's like, it's like a gain knowledge almost it is yeah it's and it, it's done in absolute terms you know we measured many times um the realism of this for them and it's essentially virtual um the most common thing we hear is oh no it wasn't a dream at all you know or i don't normally dream this is actually what transpired um, what's very interesting is the closer they get to death, the more they want to go back to whatever it was they were experienced or often disappointed they woke up. Mm. Um, so this is a happening in them, not to them. Uh, 
and they don't come out with a need to 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 you know rewrite their their story or write a book yeah <laughs> they just, yeah. <laughs> But it's, it's certainly it's certainly interesting though. It certainly makes it makes a case for a designer or some kind of spiritual, yeah, or continued, or, continued consciousness or something, right? Um, mm. Yeah, yeah. We were really, really, really careful because mm. our concern was. I I think we just again we wanted to honor the story. Um, I think we lose you lose a lot of audience when you try to then superimpose your own belief systems or editorial you know you asked me personally what it meant to me and 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 honestly that that it's comforting to me it's impossible not to do this work and feel better on the that you know it doesn't feel like finality um people leave us very much put together um and how people leave us really informs us, particularly in grief. You know, we've looked at 900 families and um, we've looked how they process loss. And, you know, if they're part of these experiences, it very much reframes how they see their, their, how they experience the loss of their loved one. And it just kind of makes sense. Has it alleviated some part of the fear of death for yourself or family members? Yeah, you know, it, it, I'm not on the side of the fence that I hear some people. I think it's, I think it's incongruent to be completely fearless of death and then at the same time fight like we all do, like hell to stay alive. I mean, it's innate in us. Um, we should be fearful because we wouldn't be alive if we were casual about living. So, um, I, 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 and we're all fearful. At least I am of the unknown. But it certainly does. It, it, it takes an edge off of this. It makes, it makes me feel as though the things that I've loved and treasured and lost aren't necessarily gone from me because I see them so commonly return to people at the end. Mm-hmm. You know, a 95-year-old who lost his mom when he was five at the end of his life re-experiences that person as though they're there and present. So it's... Um, you know, mothers who've lost babies, uh, things like that. Uh, it, it, it's, it's, uh, that's hopeful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I did see just going into a bit more in detail that your breakdown of these experiences, something like 72% of people, it, they experience people who are already passed. And um, it's a 59% of people, um, have visions of them preparing to get ready to go to transition and 29 percent experience the living and 28 or other but meaningful experiences and i know we talked a bit about about the um certain situations that can be bad experiences but i often do wonder as well is there any cases where you think you know there's a particularly maybe this isn't the right question to ask but you know, there's someone who doesn't, I put it this way, like I heard Stalin on his deathbed right before the end of his life, his daughter reported that he shook his fist up to the sky and he cursed God before he passed away. And it's supposed to be a common story. Is there any of them you think that you have you seen, you know, that, that bad experience from people who just seem not to be appreciated of life or do you know what I'm getting at here? Yeah, I I I I honestly have it. Mm-hmm. I um, I, of all the emotions that I've seen, anger or rage is not um one of them. Um, the only thing that I that I can kind of put in that specter is um unfinished lives, people who, like a young parent, um, who who's you know, it's very different to die when you're no longer, you don't have the responsibilities to other lives in the same way. So someone dying at 80 versus 30 um, is entirely different. There's a, there's a psychological trauma in that, that you, that, that I think I've seen it's, it's hard to be, find true peace. I've seen it, certainly seen it. 
but it's harder. But I haven't seen what you're describing um, at all. Um, okay. I, I really haven't. But 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 it's it would be wrong not to say that there aren't uh, struggles in dying for people, and 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 the the category for which that's most true is people who have unfinished lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I mean, you you go to somebody who's naive, particularly who's lost everybody. You know they're tired and and they look forward in 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 odd ways to to the end of it. Um, so I see that. I think it's a more age dependent experience. Yeah, I guess you know we have fear of dying, but when you get to the age of ninety and your friends and family and siblings have gone and you're getting this feeling of peace and you know, like you said, the pain is alleviating and your even in your bones, even on a physical uh, scale. You're probably like, well, look, you know, if they've gone before me and I'd like to know that, you know, they're there. And certainly your work shows that there's a good, you know, strong possibility they are. But what about then as well? You have obviously the other end of the scale where children are passing. Are their experiences similar to those of 90 year olds? You know, these. Um... No, in many ways, they do it better. Um, and some of these children are in the film there and there's a whole chapter Um on them in our in our book, um, and we've we've published a case series on them in the literature. Um, they they do this very 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 interesting. They they for one they often haven't known a person who's died. So a lot of our adult patients, their comfort comes from being reunited with a deceased loved one. Um, what a lot of our young children. Um, have done is is they've known a pet that died and it may not be their pet it may be a neighbor's or grandparents whatever but the pet comes the animal comes back with the same message and in in our children's words it's you know that they're not alone and that they're loved and they're going to be okay um, and they'll do them they'll do they'll do things with a lot of uh, with really rich imagination so um, they'll create a castle. You know, and when you ask the child why the castle, well, it's a safe place. Um, so the other thing that happens with children that's interesting is we often struggle with the language on how to tell them and, you know, what and when and the whole thing. And they seem to be able to self-inform uh, a lot from these experiences because I think there's less um, of a chiasm between the imagined world and the real world. So they just accept on faith mm-hmm. um, what they're experiencing internally. And um, it, it, in the end, it, it, I think they're more receptive to being comforted by what their mind is, heart is telling them than what they're necessarily, their eyes are seeing in our shared wake state. Um, so children do is very, very, very well in many ways. It's interesting you're saying about the pets and, and uh, again, not liking it to any other experiences, but you hear that a lot with near-death experiences as well. It's something that kind of gives people comfort as well. You know, it's hard to put down a pet for a lot of people. Well, you know, it, 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 I think it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of a cool part of the story, which is that there's an editing process that goes on on this reflection when you look back on one's life, right? So you're not going to worry about your your bills anymore or where your car keys are. You're going to you're going to automatically shift your mind and heart's focus to what truly has mattered. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so it's not surprising that that kind of goes to. And if you think about it, and it goes to the we tend to discard the people who conditioned love to us. Or, har- or harmed us in their love. And so it's not uncommon for a, someone to dream of one parent, but not another. Uh, two siblings, but not that third. And pets are unique in that for most people who've had one, it is a, it is a form of unconditioned love that we've been, we give and receive. Um, the, I, know, I know people who are assholes to other humans, but boy, there's pretty special with their dog. And um, the effect of that, particularly from early childhood. So we hear a lot of people who could be in their 70s, 80s, 90s, you know, um, they're re-experiencing their dog from early childhood. 
there is something special and singularly unique about that dynamic. Um, so, I, yeah, I think it's really interesting. People hold um, animals, and particularly dogs, I suppose, at a high level because of that reason. I think, you know, I, I've seen a, pub, a paper published on a study saying that you're more likely to give your dog prescribed medication than you would yourself. You know, you're more likely to stick to that routine. That's quite. It's, oh, it's, oh, oh, yeah. You know, and if you believe with the follow the money philosophy, that's why it's a multi-billion dollar industry in the United States yeah. is because they, they truthfully can't squeeze enough money out of people. For Yeah, people will. Uh, I've seen lots of stories about this uh, deny themselves food, but not the not the pet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Do you hear many um, similar regrets from people older in their age, say the 90 year olds, people who have lived long lives? Is there common? Is there a common regret thread? Yeah, yeah, you know, and, and it's the stuff that makes sense. We did a um, we did a paper on wisdom and dying, and and um, you know, it, it, it it's it, it's it's what you would expect in almost any self help book, right? I, I wish I had worked less hard. I wish I had mm-hmm. been more expressive to my loved ones. Um, not hung on to hate all of those sorts of things. But I, what I find interesting is that as people get closer to death, again, again, what's so interesting, it becomes experiential. It's not philosophic anymore. So they're, they're in the throes of something. They're not looking back and pondering and philosophizing or regretting or, or retabulating or formulating. They're just existing in this thing. So I think you hear a lot of those kind of reflective editorials, people who are upstream in illness um, as they're either aging or they're newly diagnosed and they're, you know, the, uh, there is reflection. Whereas people towards the end of the life um, are, are in something, if that makes sense, rather than looking back. Um, it's it's actually very much in the present for them. They feel that, and I can't emphasize enough that, that what they're telling us is no, no, this is happening to me. So they're not putting it in the context of a distant past. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, even 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 to talk about dreams, or these people are having their their visions in their dreams. I'm sure they're having waking visions also, which is commonly what you hear. And you know, even studying like yourself being a neurobiologist, you know, studying dreams is, is a very difficult thing, you know, even studying our conscious mind or where that comes from or how to locate it. And um, it's almost, I've, I've read studies saying that, you know, you know, something inside people dreams, people don't dream. It's like something else trying to teach someone a lesson or uh, trying to get out. Can you talk to any of that as, as from your neurobiological experience? Yeah, no, I, you know, what I can say is that I'm really uncomfortable with even calling them dreams because our, if we're listening to our patients, what they say is this is different. And when we ask them whether this occurred in sleep or awake, 50% of the time it's happening in wakeful periods. Um, but it's not like you walk in the room and they're having these experience. So how is it, when is it that they're experiencing and what are these things? So the nomenclature is flawed, right? Mm-hmm. Because if the subject of our inquiry is saying this isn't that yet, we keep calling it dreams. You know, it may be dying um, changes sleep architecture. So the clock gets lost in and out of sleep, um, day, night, it all there's this blur. It one thing that one explanation may be that they're lucid dreaming. Mm-hmm. So they're dreaming in that phase of sleep that feels most experienced. Um, and also so that they they do actually feel o- awake. Um, I stopped trying to figure that part of it out a long time ago. Um, because I I I it impairs the ability to just accept what we're being told. I don't have an answer. I really, I, 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 I was stunned when I, when we did the early studies. And so we said, one of the questions was this happened when you were asleep, awake or both. And half the time they came back, 
awake. And I'm thinking, well, this can't be. And in our first study, we were analyzing over 500 responses, unique responses. So, I mean, it's not like it was a couple of guys down the hall. I mean, it was large numbers. And I've never understood it. Um, I, I, I still I still don't. You know, and you could do a sleep study on these folks, but it would feel very intrusive. And um, I don't, the under, our understanding wouldn't change the reality, I guess. I don't know what to do with it. Yeah, it's interesting when you hear like the purpose of dreams or even how that um, manifests itself in the human brain. You know, it's still such a deep topic for discovery, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. I, I do think what's interesting is there's from our vantage point, there's such a uh, a bias towards looking at the dreams as, um, you know, a pursuit of unresolved issues or manifestations of a subconscious mind and da, 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 da. And, and I don't think these are any of the above. And you yourself, have you ever, um, you know, when you talk to people, about anything spiritual, metaphysical, you know, even if even if they're complete atheist or you know against it, um, everyone has a story of something that happened to them that seems a bit, you know, they, everyone has a story of, you know, something that was very strange or, or supernatural or metaphysical, you know, that happened to them. You yourself have have come across any of that in your own life? Um, you 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 mean from a a, a dream state? Maybe from a dream state, I, I suppose the spectrum is quite wide. Um, anything, any personal experience, yeah, maybe from a, a realistic dream state that that was particularly meaningful. Yeah, you know, I, I, I and and I, and, and it, it's a it's a um, it's a very common one. It's a more phenomenal what they refer to as a phenomenal logic one, which is kind of an awareness that somebody close to you died. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and that's always been within the lore, uh, is that, and there, there, there were some actually very early writings by a physicist, um, named Bartlett in the early 1900s in England, who got very interested in this topic for that reason. Um, and, um, and, uh, I've been contacted by a, a lot of people about this who, who they're with, a, an elder parent who's aware of the loss of a sibling somewhere else um i i yeah that that's the only thing i can think of Um, that's interesting is it to to, you know to experience the loss of someone who's not physically or even you know in their environment necessarily um it kind of exceeds biology to that extent doesn't it It, it's it's a it's another link on the chain almost isn't it well, it's actually the story that started some of this research for, by this physicist. His wife was a doctor in England, and she was caring for a woman who was dying postpartum. And her father had died in uh, a neighboring town, and they decided not to tell the young, the young dying mom. And then she starts referring to her dead father. So the doctor goes home and tells her husband, the physicist, hey, guess what happened to me at work today? He became interested in this topic, even though he was a hardcore bench scientist. And he, he, wrote, he wrote beautifully on the topic and then did the, some of the earliest best work on what we're doing. That's um, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, tell me, do you, do you think that, um, that this whole the the palliative care i know it's it's to it's really to comfort people at their last moments of life isn't it that's the whole process of the whole idea is to people keep people at the patients at maximum comfort so that they can make the transition as easy or is that clinically that's that's a version i think the, the the best definition is it's to optimize one's quality of life okay um so that may be um so, so they could be years from dying, um, but that they have a complexity of needs. It could be from pain management. It could be religious existential. It could be from the practical, like the social work end of things. How do I set things up to pay for my kids? Um, 
it's that whole spectrum. It could be practical needs in the home. I need uh, different wheelchairs access into my bathtub. So if you define it more broadly in terms of one, how does one live with that illness um, and, and for a good quality of life, that's the objective of, of palliative care. A very, very, very narrow piece of that is the care at the very end of life. Mm-hmm. Um, but it occurs much further upstream. And really then the objectives though, in terms of relief of suffering are really all forms of suffering, not just, again, the physical is, is kind of cookbooky. Um, but what we're looking at is more existential um, issues. Yeah, I know there's a girl, um, sorry, doctor, was it Jill Smith who wrote a bit of a book on this, um, this um, mental and emotional care when people enter the palliative care place where maybe it's it's to avoid them type of experience that so you're talking them small percentage and the negative experiences that they can um you know i suppose the, you can see from a family's perspective they don't you know if their their mother who's ill they don't want them pulling up the infant that they lost years ago you know while they're on their dying bed and but obviously there's a whole lot of research that indicates that that makes the process a lot better isn't it like it's like you're the dream of the war, you know, where it was initially bad, but if he, once he got through it, yeah, it's supposed to like any psychological care, but um, there's definitely a good space for that to happen in palliative care, isn't there? The, um, the therapy yeah, of emotional. And I, you know, I think the part that's missed is this idea that dying is this passive pro- process, right? Which is that the patient is lying in the bed and it's a lessening. And I think what a lot of research is showing is actually there's a hell of a lot happening and um, you cannot deny the realities that this person's experiencing, including reflection on their life, no matter what you view its quality to have been. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, we sterilize dying people. We put them on the shelf. We um, treat them as though they're, they're frail and which they may be physically, but that doesn't necessarily mean they are psychologically um, and spiritually. And clearly there's a lot going on. Um, it, these are precious days and hours. And uh, there's, there's a lot of profound uh, work going on. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think we, we, we tend to shortchange what's actually happening in the bed. Can you speak to, you know, experiences, I know there's a lot of people experience their past relatives, but, you know, we often hear of experiences you read about people, you know, feel like they're crossing the river, they're going up the stairs, you know, they're, they're at the pearly gates and, you know, these other type of. Oh yeah. Like over a third of our patients experience, um, have at least one experience that includes themes of travel or preparing to go. Mm -hmm. Um, what I always find so interesting is the metaphor is so obvious, yet they don't come back and relay that. Like, like you know, I, I don't know why I was crossing this river in a canoe, and um, but they <laughs> they don't put it uh, together. That I've had some great ones, you know, um, you know, somebody who's dead picks him up in a pink Cadillac, and we're driving through our old neighborhood. Why would that be? You know, um, so yeah, it's, it's, um, this idea of a chain of heralding change is very, very, very real. Um, but it goes back to this idea that this is less of a platform for analysis because they're not coming back and saying, well, clearly it means I'm going from here to, to there, (laughs) to them, they just went in a pink Cadillac, right? Mm -hmm. So it's it's kind of funny um but i don't know uh, i don't know what to make of it um but i think it's fascinating that they don't feel the burden of having to dissect and and analyze yeah um, do you is there a place for someone to come in and say well maybe this means you know whatever i'm guessing they're they're loving uh, anyway. i guess only if asked um i think it's great though that they're not they don't feel compelled to share. They don't necessarily feel um, compelled to, uh, there's not a need to have somebody do their work for them. 
Um, again, it goes back to this notion that it's just this lived experience and it's taken at face value. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I've just gotten so respectful of the process that <clears throat> even though I, I, I tend to be a busybody, I'm not, I'm less likely to delve into <clears throat> to this. Yeah. Um, People have similar uh, reports, similar experiences through deep meditation and things like that as well. It's quite interesting if, you know, if are you know, people in the process of dying and say people who are in deep meditation, are they going to um, a level of consciousness a little bit above and beyond, you know, um, what what we're generally experiencing on a day to day? Oh, yeah. I mean, cl- cl- clearly, the I agree with you. I think that there's a lot of overlap um, to heightened sensory um, events and, and deeper access to the mind. Uh, and I mean, a, a lot of indigenous people have have have, have reproduced those phenomena. Um, I, I don't pretend to know a lot about it, but 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 what clearly happens is that the, they take us from from a different vantage point than we share in the present, and um, there's something more profound at work. Um, and you can get there through a lot of routes, whether they're you're talking psychedelics, meditation, their diet, but yes, yeah. yeah. That's interesting that, you know, the East, they have these traditions in the East um, of, of what we're taught. It's like the West is only catching up to, you know, the deep spiritual roots from these, um, the, the way people used to do things, the holistic approaches and um you know, you often hear about, you know, the shaman or, you know, they seem to know a lot of deeper spiritual elements. They still seem to hold them fundamentally in the in the Eastern cultures. Um, I think the West, maybe, maybe I'm wrong in saying this, but they've come, become so scientific, um, so technologically advanced. That's, ex- that's exactly, um, that's exactly what's happening. You know, I, I've had a lot of fascinating conversations with an Australian filmmaker named Lynette Walworth, who um, is one of the leading Emmy Award winner in virtual reality. And she's worked with all sorts of indigenous folks in South America and in Australia. And clearly, um, not only is this multicultural and transcends history, but it's more the case that this is something that's always existed that we merely obscured um, in, 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 the, in the West. And, you know, it's, you know, from, a, from an anthropologic or cultural standpoint, for a, lot of, for a lot of peoples, this is a very important way to which they remain tied to, tied to their ancestors. Um, this is this is lineage. This is uh, how they make sense or experience um, loss of people. Is is that they're not gone? They're they're somewhere else, but they're accessible to us. They're in us. Um, so death is less about finality. The more you die, you know, d- define and contextualize death um, uh, as as uh, at a biologic level, then it is irreversible, permanent, and final. Um, but uh, what everyone has done throughout time is, is, is see it as something that we're defined more than the cells that we're comprised of. Um, so, yeah. You're right. Yeah, because it definitely seems as a push on more of a technological advance and, you know, we're completely distracted and... Um, the industrial revolution obviously pushed that on and the scientific revolution, not to say that there hasn't been great um, strides there for people's health also. Um, but I think we've lost, We, you know, I'm not saying we should all be going out banging drums and hell at the moon around the fire every night. But I think that there, there's definitely a sense of, like I, I notice it when I go out into nature myself, there's that sense of refreshness, you know, you're recharging almost, you know, you're in, in touch with, with, maybe your roots to something that we're not um we're not aligned with these days you know we're more inside watching you know tv or on the phone completely and um you know it can't be good for our health but i do think that's why i think that's why more people are 
there's a more atheist, that new atheist movement is coming because we're not thinking about the spiritual elements of things. We're not, um, we don't want to contend with them. We think of death when we're close to death's door more so when um, we're probably out of touch with the fundamentals of life. And I don't think it's good for political decision-making in that front either, you know? Um, yeah. I think there's a lot of, um, maybe going philosophically about it again, but there's a lot of, Friedrich Nietzsche and you know all these guys warning about that coming um, a few hundred years ago but it's amazing that the West has still held on to their tradition so I listened to a podcast the um, Undeniable where uh, the chief from Africa um, I can't think of his name but he was saying that when when the Catholic regime came in they transformed our our very methods and our um, our cultures you know they can't believe that so many people in the West believe in a spiritual being like a God because they don't experience anything spiritual. He said, but we had our spiritual church was music to us. You know, it was getting together is, you know, highlighting it. Um, and that was eradicated, unfortunately. Um, so it is a shame that the world is turning more and more like this. And it just goes to show why you encountered maybe so many barriers with your research to no one wants to go near that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, a more sophisticated approach is that um, the, the, the idea that somebody has all, the answer um, is, and they're pretty self enamored with their technology or what have you and disregarding um, the perceptions of, and, and learnings of others um, when really, I, I think where you end up is that, you know, you, that you, we need to have greater openness, um, uh, including cultural. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people have lived to the, through the millennium with, with, with knowledge. Um, the, the idea that we somehow newly invented uh, all of this is, is, is humorous, but... Mm-hmm. It's, it's like almost lost knowledge to us in the West. Um, yeah. but one, th- one thing I wanted to ask you is, um, do you ever hear of many religious figures being involved in these experiences? Because you do, you can hear. No, and, and, no, and we've wrestled with this a great deal, that we hear them, but not as common as you would think. And there's actually been some very good articles written by the religious on why this is. And... Um, yeah, uh, th- there's a, there's a wonderful interpretation, which is that that people don't speak of life and death in terms of the symbols of faith, but rather its tenets, um, the tenets of love, the tenets of forgiveness, and those are prevalent. So I think it's consistent with the be- with the core belief elements of religion, without necessarily identifying the um, the man the the symbolic or the, the the manifestations symbolically of faith um so they they might not talk about seeing church and synagogue but they certainly speak of love and forgiveness so i don't i don't think they're too incompatible yeah okay well that's nice to hear and um any any new books on the horizon or any more talks coming up no, I uh, so we wrote a book with Penguin Random House. Um, I it, I know it's in your country. I forget what the publishers, uh, Sarkis, or it's one of the large publishing houses, and it's called Death is But a Dream. Yes, that's right. And um, and uh, and uh, it's the same publishing house that was used in England and the UK. And uh, there's also a PBS uh, special that's accessible um of the same title mm-hmm. um but what's really what i would recommend if you can't do those things is go to our website and the reason why i say that is because there's videos of patients and families on there and it's much more valuable than listening to me um and that's www.drdrchristopherkerr with a k k e r r dot com and there's links to all sorts of patient family videos there you, you can't, you, you really can't do it justice without hearing from them themselves. That's great. Yeah, I'll post that link on it. And listen, um, I, I really appreciate you coming on, taking the time to speak to me today. It was thank an absolute you. pleasure having you on. And a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Really, thank you for reaching out. Yeah, yeah that's have, great. Have a good day. Same to you. Thank you, sir.